Hello, welcome to Wheat from the Chaff. I'm Finlow Castain, the editor-in-chief of 8.9.com. And I'm Phil Carson, the head of UK policy for the Nature Friendly Farming Network. And later on in the programme, we're going to be joined by a special guest, Rob Havard from Feps and Angus, and he's going to be talking about regenerative beef cattle breeding. So the first story that we're going to look at today is funding to address the impact of flooding for communities that have been particularly affected and that includes funding for farmers so up to £25,000 through the Farming Recovery Fund and this would allow for repair and reinstatement costs for farmers who've been affected by exceptional flooding of which we've seen an awful lot in the south of England um, particularly where we've had, I was looking at it last week, about 100 flood warnings on the space of a week. So Phil, £25,000 is not an insubstantial amount of money. What kind of things do you think that that's going to be spent on? Because it strikes me that the most resilient, the most regenerative for farmers, they're not necessarily going to have that many costs, are they? It's more about infrastructure from those farmers that are more within the business as usual sort of element. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. And I think for this scheme to work and to work well, it would be good to get some clearer guidance or a kind of clearer purpose for it. I think at this stage in it, it's less about building resilience to flooding and more about dealing with the negative consequences after they've occurred. And I think this brings into into play quite a pertinent debate at the moment in terms of how we build landscapes that are adaptable to flooding. And we've seen, I suppose, in, in the press recently, there's, again, rising calls for increased dredging, for example, or um, yeah, flood defences, which are, which are built. And from our perspective at the Nature Friendly Farming Network, some of those elements could potentially play a role, but we also really, really need to look at nature-based solutions, looking at it at a catchment-based approach, but also just a real focus on, on soil health across the board, as well to try and improve things too and I think often that can get left out of the conversation a little bit. Clearly there's been a massive deluge and this deluge has come after what was already a wet winter and that followed really what was essentially a wet year. There was no let up uh, across the summer for many of us and of course the flooding is affecting everyone. It's not just farmers but it strikes me that farmers have the greatest agency, the greatest capacity to change that story uh, through regenerative soil management and you were giving me a fantastic statistic when we were talking about this last week. Yeah, so I have mentioned this piece of research before, but it always um, serves to refresh the memory, I think. And there was a bit of work undertaken by King College in London that looked at, I suppose, natural flood defences and I suppose the role that regenerative farming could play within that. And it estimated that the average UK farm, if it was managed regeneratively, would be able to store an additional 16 million litres of water um, as a result of that management and if you would build that across the entirety of the country or the entirety of the UK then you're seeing really 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 big impacts on that front. So often we focus on the cost of flooding so it's about at least 1.3 billion pounds per year and um, we know the impacts of that are going to grow unless we get a real handle on this so there's a, a bit of work that estimates that by 2080 an area the size of Greater Manchester will be flooded and that's prime arable and horticultural land. And yeah, nature-based solutions, regenerative farming have a massive role to play within this. And from our perspective at the network, we've seen some farmers within our membership who are, who are leading the way. And there's one farmer in particular that's been on, um, I suppose it got quite a lot of national press out of this, who's got 100 acres of floodplain meadow, which is intentionally flooded each year. Um, to, to help protect the local community further downstream and there's support through that from agri-environment schemes and there's also an ability to produce food off that land as well so I think we need to talk a lot more about this sort of stuff and that research as well. Fantastic. And I think this brings us into the next story, doesn't it? The uh, uh, the second story being around the nature of soil carbon uh, and particularly soil carbon markets. So this is a Nuffield report investigating carbon farming and soil carbon markets where the farm advisor, Ben Hunt, who was uh, a Nuffield scholar in 2022, he's published his Nuffield farming report entitled Can You Farm Carbon? And I think that what Ben was expecting when he started that research was that he'd find uh, so that, that soil carbon was a real opportunity 
And actually, I think he's come out of it feeling slightly less engaged. Uh, and so as part of that scholarship, uh, Ben travelled to the Netherlands, Belgium, France, Denmark, the USA, Canada, as well as obviously looking at things in the UK. And within the soil carbon market, he's talking about companies paying farmers to adopt practices that remove atmospheric carbon from the atmosphere into the soil. So if we're looking at the key messages coming out of this report, then I think one of the key things that he says uh, is that soil carbon markets are not the transformative panacea that he'd imagined. He says it's uncertain whether the offset soil carbon market will be a suitable instrument for driving genuine climate impact or agricultural transformation. It could play a modest future role if the integrity and carbon pricing improve, that there is a substantial risk in terms of greenwash. And we're going to talk about this later because you know, there's a new toolkit for farmers that we're going to discuss in the third part of the programme. But I think the key element around this is while soil carbon markets, they are exciting, they are something that farmers potentially can benefit from in the future, the market isn't the only reason to store soil carbon. This was, again, a very interesting piece. And one of the, the key pieces that resonated with me from Ben's work Again, were issues around additionality and permanence, and I suppose this is a these are these are kind of issues that come up in conversations around private markets, particularly around carbon, over and over and over again. But there's one bit in particular that was quite interesting, and that was this idea that these carbon markets sometimes serve to pay for existing activity from those farmers that are already doing good stuff, as opposed to really driving new practice. And therefore, additional emissions kind of, or I suppose, carbon sequestration and storage compared to the baseline. So it's not driving real material change is the argument within this. And there's a need for higher carbon pricing is one of the arguments within this. Otherwise, we could see the potential of greenwash. And then another element which I find was quite interesting within this as well is quite right. You talk about it not being a panacea and not being the real focus or driving focus of changes in land management. And yeah, he says, adopting carbon farming practices could demonstrably boost soil carbon with myriad benefits, but the scale of its potential climate impact remains debated and there's an ongoing question around how long how long carbon is stored, how much is sequestered, etc, etc. And then goes on to say, therefore, climate change mitigation is currently best seen as a potential co-benefit not the primary focus of carbon farming. And that kind of resonates with the conversation that we had last week, that this is the gateway into all these other different things that, that benefit farming. And this is, of course, what links it to that earlier story that we were talking about. Where, you know, what are those co-benefits? There's alleviating flooding for one, using the carbon as a building block for general biodiversity regeneration. Uh, and also, regardless of payments, soil carbon sequestration potential has a huge opportunity for humankind. And I just want to go back to a story. This is a story from quite a long time back, 6th of July, where a former UN chief scientist from Australia was talking about the way in which cattle are instrumental for keeping temperatures below low uh, 1.5 degrees C. This is Jacqueline McGlade. What she was saying was that using better farming techniques to store 1% more carbon in about half of the world's agricultural soils would be enough to absorb 31 gigatons of carbon dioxide a year. That amount is not far off the 32 gigatons gap between current planned emissions reduction globally per year and the amount of carbon that must be cut by 2030 to stay within 1.5 degrees C. So regardless of exactly how we measure it, regardless of the precise value of it, there is a huge benefit to humanity um, of storing more carbon in the soil. We need to move on to the next story. This is a whole sector approach needed to create resilience in the UK dairy sector. And this is the Food Ethics Council, who've done two and a half years of research looking at the way that uh, UK dairy works, trying to find ways of um, changing it and creating, uh, as they say, resilience within that sector. And they were looking at things such as the power imbalances in the value chain, um, the way uh, and, and, and the report outlines vital actions that key groups can take from landowners to financial services. And I think one of the key messages around this, uh, around dairy in particular, is that it's often very difficult for farmers themselves to change. They need the support of contractors. They need flexibility within their contracts. They need banks to support them. They need retailers to support them because at the moment, <laughs> it's it, dairy is such a risky business. 
Yeah, it points to the need for systemic change and that it makes the fair point that government schemes and funding schemes have an important role to play, but by no means the only role to play within a lot of this. And I think this is a bit of a theme of our conversation throughout today is that there needs to be change from a whole range of different actors, including the supply chain, including the public, in terms of strategic investment from government and things like that as well. And this report, it has a plethora of recommendations for farming organisations, for those in the supply chain, for retailers, for schools, for members of the public. Yeah, pretty, pretty much everyone has a recommendation that they could, they could adopt. But it focuses on five in particular that I suppose are the most pertinent and most important from the view of Food Ethics Council and I suppose from the work that they've done with farmers over the last two and a half years. And those are to end the sale of milk as a loss-leading product in supermarkets, which, yeah, is, is sensible, create secure, fair and flexible contracts. And reading on this, it was quite interesting. Farmers were saying that um, during the COVID pandemic, they wanted to sell locally, um, but because of exclusivity clauses in their contract, they weren't able to do so. So trying to address some of those issues. Another one I thought was quite interesting was to create a regional relief milking labour pool, which would allow um, staff to, I suppose, shortages to be covered on farms all the time and also to give farmers a bit of a break um, and a bit of headspace to really think about yeah, the future of their business or even to have a holiday. Um, so I think that's a really, really interesting argument or, or proposal to raise the standards in processed dairy products, so to increase the standards across the board, and then to pass any premiums on the shelf down to farmers, which is, yeah, absolutely uh, critical. So, yeah, an interesting report, um, quite wide-ranging. Um, it'd be interesting to see if any of those recommendations kind of build resonance with, with policymakers and politicians, especially as we have a debate in the House of the Parliament on the recent petition on getting fair about farming. So I think that's taking place on the 22nd of January and supply chain fairness is going to be yeah debated after over 100,000 people signed that petition, which is good to see. As you say, the key message was that uh, while new funding may well be available for certain aspects of, uh, of nature-friendly farming, that funding alone isn't going to be enough to save the dairy sector. There's a whole sector transition that's needed. And of course, the dairy sector has probably industrialised more recently and more rapidly than any other sector within agriculture. And so we've now got maybe a fifth of farms in the UK that are fully indoor, 365 days a year. And to me, it just seems that that industrialisation has been based on a lie, uh, that we need a holistic approach to ecological security, a pure focus on emissions and efficiency is driving us in completely the wrong direction. But these people have put massive investments into this infrastructure, which then has 20 or 30 years to run. So expecting them to change again is very difficult. And so the big opportunity really is in those more seasonal dairies that aren't yet regenerative and how can those dairies become more regenerative and that really does require that flexibility within the contracts in order that they're able to uh, to perhaps take a drop in literage in the amount of production in that transition period even if ultimately there's going to be a rise in the number of litres that come out of that there needs to be that flexibility and for that we need leadership from a whole range of places we're seeing leadership leadership from farmers themselves, lots of conversations, but we need leadership uh, from the companies and we need, you know, really strong leadership from the boardroom. And actually, you know, just again, going back to last week, First Milk are a really good example of where, you know, they have really nailed their colours to the mast around regenerative agriculture and they're trying to make those decisions. You know, they're difficult decisions. Mm. You know, it's a real challenge for the business, but they are trying to work through it from the boardroom down. Look, we're, we're really running out of time for these, uh, these first few stories so should we go on to the uh, the final one yes let's go on to the final one and yeah on that kind of theme of supply chain and trying to drive up standards and i suppose yeah trying to deliver better reward for farmers for meeting those standards there's an interesting report out by fair to nature on um yeah their new accreditation scheme which is supported by rspb um on the role that the supply chain can play in supporting more nature-friendly farming and delivering i suppose a lot of the ambitions that that society wants 
And it kind of focuses very much in the press release on the site on that kind of drive and enthusiasm from the public for more nature-friendly farming practices. So it says that over half of UK adults want farmers to adopt farming practices which preserve and enhance the environment and nature. And yeah, one way to do that is through scheme accreditation, for example. Um, I don't know if you've had a, had a look at it, Finlow, but what did you what did you make of this? I, I did. I mean, the first thing was that, you know, one of those sort of key figures within the headline, over half of UK adults want UK farmers to prioritise nature-friendly for- farming. The surprise was it was only 56%. I would have expected it to be right up there at sort of 75, 80, even, even higher than that. There was also this idea that, you know, there was a, a widespread lack of understanding about the, you know, the use of different terms, which again, I don't think is a particular surprise. It, it, you know, there isn't standardisation. And when it comes to regenerative, we, you know, we've kind of worked back away from standardization because this is all about a conversation between farmers and customers from a farm level where you're applying pillars of principle rather than you know meeting specific input standards but at the same time there is a need to communicate these things i think one of the things that slightly concerned me about the report was the way in which it sort of repeated this thing that i've heard from the rspb in the past that seems just to support a land sparing approach to be embedded in that land sparing approach They said uh, nature on farms can be restored and protected if every farm sets aside 10% of their land for nature. I mean, what happens to the other 90%? 10% for nature. I mean, I want to see nature-friendly practices right across the whole farm estate, you know, in the UK and, and, you know, further afield across the world. Are they really suggesting that we can carry on with business as usual, you know, on 90% of the farm and we just need to be nice to nature? Uh, on 10%. Yeah, I think that's a fair challenge. Where I think the argument is coming from is that 10% is the minimum required in terms of dedicated areas for nature, so specifically managed semi-natural habitats, for example, hedgerows, things like that. That's the minimum. It's the floor rather than the ceiling. And one thing it doesn't talk about within this is the management within the rest of the farm. And I know for a fact that the the standard itself does go a lot broader than just specific habitat management and is trying, I think, to push, um, I suppose, more regenerative practices. And it could do a lot more to to sell those, for example. So I think that's, that's a fair enough challenge in terms of the comms. For me, reading the report, it was very much focused on the supply chain. I don't know if there was much emphasis in terms of the benefits to farmers or farm businesses from being involved in this standard. And with the debate around greener farms commitment and things like that as well, um, I think there really needs to be some sort of communication around how the supply chain pays for a lot of this stuff and benefits farmers from actually delivering some of these things which... Um, yeah, some of it's quite stretching. Well, I'm going to be talking to the head of uh, Fair to Nature later in the week. And so um, I'll put some of those questions to him and we'll find out more at that point. Let's take a break. And we're back and we're joined by Rob Havard from Feps and Angus. Hello, Rob. Hello, how are you, Finlay? Oh, very well. Really good to have you here. Thanks so much for being here. Look, we had a, an 8.9 TV interview last week, which has uh, gone out and is available for people. But as part of that interview, I asked you about how pedigree breeds fit alongside the regenerative principle of diversity. And you talked about wild deer. And I wonder if we could just start with that. If you could give us uh, give us your thoughts around that again. Yeah, I think rather than look at diversity for the sake of diversity always it's more about mimicking natural systems and i think you know there are habitats that have slightly less less diversity depending on where they are and i think the same goes with the species we choose and in terms of what we look at and how we're trying to fix characteristics in our cattle uh, one of the key things where we try and do is to obviously keep selecting those cattle that work and fix those traits and that ends up that we, we you know, I actually use a, a bull on his daughters. I've used our foundation sire, Kaiser, on his daughters and then his daughter's daughters um, with no ill effect. Uh, and in fact, you know, really produce some really good cows. 
And I think research... Uh, and if that, was, if that was within the human population, that would be <laughs> frowned upon, I'd say. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, yeah, it's one of those things where you, you don't, you know, that's not the sort of thing you talk about at dinner parties. Although I was asked about this by an aristocrat once who, who, was, who asked me to confirm so that inbreeding was actually okay, which was slightly concerning. But I, I think when we look at uh, natural systems, we, what we actually see in large herbivores is something quite similar. Um, and so if we think about like a really dominant stag that would in, in red deer populations that might stand a harem of hinds uh, over six, seven, eight years, possibly in a really long standing stag. And so obviously that stag is then breeding with its daughters because the harems tend to be family groups, so mother, daughter, granddaughter, and so on. And so, but what happens is, as you start to get closer bred, you start to get inbreeding depression, um, which means that you get slightly smaller animals with slightly less vigor. And so the sons of those matings would then tend to be uh, less dominant, less vigorous. And so when they come to battle it out to win the harems when they're older, they're going to be less likely to be successful breeders. So what you tend to have is a really dominant, successful stag. So the bigger, stronger, more vigor, the longer he's likely to last. That means he's going to stand longer. Um, but then towards the end of his time, his sons are then going to be less vigorous. And so it's more likely you're going to have an unrelated male then come in. And this mimics quite a lot of how we operate. So, you know, just essentially where we've got you know, dominant, really dominant bulls. Kaiser, our foundation side, is a very dominant bull. We use multiple bulls, and sometimes these bulls just have an energy about them. So when we're using multiple bulls with the cows, you'll just see Kaiser's literally just got to look at another bull, and they'll go, okay, I'm not messing with that. Uh, I'll just stand over here while you get the work done. And, and so, and that kind of dominance is often related to hormone balance in the animal, which has an impact on behavior and all sorts of things. And so what we find is, you know, by hook or by crook, we end up mimicking natural systems. And that has worked really well for us. Selecting males that dominate can fight as well. We keep bull groups together. So there's some selection pressure on the bulls. Those that come out on top and survive and have good structure won't have a problem with the fighting. It'll, you know, it's a bit of another selection pressure for us. And then those that end up standing longest, lasting longest, we're then actually putting those genes of longevity back into the cows over time as well. So it's, there's lots of good things about that process for us. It's interesting. You know, I, I sort of open this up by talking about that regenerative principle of diversity, but also within regenerative agriculture, you have the principle of natural succession, where they may well be dominant species um, existing in the soil, uh, docks or whatever else it happens to be, uh, because that's what the soil is appropriate for at that time. But there's a natural succession uh, and gradually those, uh, those plants will be crowded out uh, for something else as the soil changes. So the idea of dominant species and breeds throughout biodiversity, I suppose, is uh, is something that we can all understand. The other thing that I'm taking from that anecdote is that the wives of aristocrats clearly just need to change their husbands every six or seven years. Well, yeah, I mean, maybe that's something that they're moving towards. I, I don't know. We'd have to ask them. Some Indeed. sort of social policy. <laughs> Yeah. Hi, Rob. Nice to meet you. And uh, uh, thanks for coming to speak to us today. I had a listen to last week's conversation. It was fascinating. One of the things that kind of struck out to me was your experience in terms of managing, I suppose, nature reserves and things like that and how the environmental payments were making the system profitable, but the the animals themselves weren't profitable. And I'm just interested to see how a kind of renewed focus on genetics and on breeding kind of improved that and how much of a contribution it can make to supporting farm profitability and whether many have cottoned on to that as well. Okay, yeah, there's there's quite a lot there. I think, yeah, I started out when I left, you know, grew up on the family farm, but then working as a professional ecologist and I ended up managing large areas and managing charity that was managing um 3,000 acre, uh, effectively nature reserves. So I've managed a lot of nature reserves. I also grazed a lot of nature reserves when I started out, came into the farming partnership and got paid to graze nature reserves. So that worked quite well for the business, but the cattle weren't making money in the business themselves. And so I realized, or I was always concerned that what happens if we don't get the environmental subsidies, which were effectively paying for me to be paid to graze these sites. 
And so for farmers who are currently getting environmental subsidies, what happens if they disappear? So if the cattle aren't profitable in those systems, then it's a problem. And I think the thing that you tend to find is that you can have more high-performance, high-productivity genetics in those systems, and they'll do a reasonable job in terms of the delivery of ecological outcomes, um, but they won't, won't perform themselves. And so that was a big turning point for me, realizing this is a really this is a missing piece of the jigsaw in the whole picture. And then doing a bit of consultancy early on, I was lucky to be quite early in the holistic management regenerative grazing area. So sort of ten years ago or more, seeing people transition and seeing it all fall apart because they were using continental muscled genetics, and it just wasn't working. So I think the key thing in terms of genetics and profit is not to have the wrong genetics, first off. So I think that's the key thing is because that will really, then the whole thing can fall apart. You know, it's if you were to take, um, the you know, really high input dairy cows and try and get them to milk on, you know, a moorland or something, that's not going to work. It's just, it's just, you know, it's obvious, isn't it? But it, you know, needs saying the same goes for beef production. And then I think if we look at the level of knowledge, there's a lot we've forgotten. Um, there's a lot of knowledge within old stockmen and women and, and breeders of the past. And um, and I think just looking back can sometimes help us. So, for example, the, the tradition of cow families is a really interesting one where because of our focus on sort of the Mendelian pairs of genetic selection, where you're getting 50% of the genes from one and 50% of it from the other, you know, I remember working for the Rare Breed Survival Trust years ago, talking to geneticists, top UK geneticists, some of the top people in the country were saying, oh, this is old hat now. We don't do cow families anymore um, because it's just 50-50 from each. And so the bull's having much bigger impact on the herd and so on. But what we've forgotten in that process or not taking account of is actually the mitochondrial DNA, um, which is the DNA that codes for adaptability. It codes for the epigenetic changes and the association with the environment. It codes for metabolic efficiency. Um, it codes for the turning of all, you know, essentially the, the management of the turning um, everything into ATP for energy within the cell. So that sort of energy management, which is really important in low input systems. 99% of all of the uh, mitochondrial DNA comes from the female. So it turns out that those old cowmen and women were right about cow families, um, and we need to really consider that. Essentially, the cow is what's reacting to your environment on your place. And so um, having and selecting for those cows that work over the long period of time on your own farm is really important to do that, and you can maybe speed that up if your genetics aren't quite right with, with bull selection as well, um, and that, that can make a big difference. And then finally, just in terms of the genetic selection, once you've got or once you haven't got the wrong genetics, if you put it that way, the key thing really is that you've got a calf every year. Because if you look at fertility rates in the UK herd, they're terrible, to be honest. We're looking at 75% weaning percentages. I think we've got it's um, over 400 days in terms of uh, calving interval. So the cows are slipping. They're not getting in calf on time every year, every 12 months. Uh, all of these things cost a huge amount. You don't get that back in increased carcass, increased growth rate. And in fact, there's various reasons why increased carcass, increased growth rate requires different hormone balance to a fertile animal. It can actually be antagonistic to you getting, um, you know, high fertility rates and getting fertile animals. So getting a calf out of every animal is an absolute paramount. That's the first trait. And then really in terms of profitability, all you really need is a marketable calf. So in terms of the production level you want to reach, if you're re if, as long as you're meeting market requirements and you're getting a calf off every cow, you can then tweak and, and you can push a bit if you really want to to get a bit more performance and get bigger calves. But you have to remember if you've got faster, bigger growing calves, you're going to get bigger cows and your energy cost of those cows goes up and that has an impact on your cow herd and so on. So I always think it's safer just to hit the middle, select out of the middle, don't, ex don't select the extremes, which is what we've always done in breeding. The select the extremes, the outliers, the curve benders, as they call them, but actually selecting from the middle, which is what nature does, 
um, and everything breeds back to the middle of the bell curve. So just continue doing that, select for fertility and hormone balance and all will be well. Level of knowledge you asked about. Yeah, I think I did say that the level of knowledge is, there's a lot of old knowledge from um, old cowmen and women, you know, with the cow family story. You know, that's that's kind of, so we need to go back to that. So there is knowledge out there. I think it's just, essentially, it's it's actually just keeping it simple um, I don't think there needs to be a huge increase in the level of knowledge because you can actually just do what works. You've got a cut mm. calf from every animal. And you keep selecting on that basis. Keep it simple. We don't need to be complicated. I just had one, one other question in relation to all of that. So there's an increased focus in kind of ruminant genetics in some of the countries around the UK. And I suppose the role that government policy and schemes can support in terms of making decisions around it. And in Northern Ireland, they have a sustainable ruminant genetics program, which would be all around benchmarking and data and things like that. But looking at it with, yeah, I admit relatively little expertise in this area, it does seem to focus very much on efficiency and production and kind of, yeah, there's a line here around um, creating carbon efficient animals. And it feels a bit one size fits all. And I don't know if you have any, any thoughts in terms of government support and making helping people make the right decisions in the right areas yeah well i think i think i'm right in saying that i heard finlay talking about carbon tunnel vision the other day and i think it that's just this is another example of that so if we're going to start selecting one of the problems of selecting for anything is that it's usually antagonistic for something else which is why I try and say keep it simple and just get a calf every year. The concern is what's included in the metrics that come through the government schemes. And if, you know, we've got a situation where people are putting sheep in containers to measure the methane emissions and then selecting the animals that have the lowest methane emissions per unit of food that they've eaten or so on uh, to kind of look at methane efficiency or carbon efficiency and I, and I just fear that that's that's not selecting for the functional animals that we need um, because it's it, essentially it's everything else goes out the window and as soon as you have these indexes it's always tempting unfortunately because we're human beings we always want the thing with the highest number when actually we want to select out of the middle in my opinion of the of performance of that group and select what works and if you look at where a lot of our costs come from in the industry, it comes from interventions. So it's problem-free animals are the key. And as soon as you start selecting um, outliers uh, or selecting for things that are not that related to the efficiency or the, you know, the productive efficiency or the fertility efficiency of an animal, like methane emissions, then that could be a problem. And I think my final point on that is is the focus on systems that should sort this out itself. We use regenerative grazing systems. We don't really need to worry about this sort of thing because all of the carbon that's being emitted is essentially coming from something that's been produced through photosynthesis. So it's already been fixed out of the atmosphere before it passes through the cow and comes out again in another form. So that's one good thing. I think another thing about regenerative systems is to look at the really diverse lays can actually massively increase rumen efficiency. So the uh, the condensed tannins that are in a lot of our wild flowers actually, it's this you know we, we've heard about people feeding seaweed products to cows and feeding seaweed products to sheep to reduce methane emissions. The reason that works is because they're high in condensed tannins. But so are a lot of our native pastures. And so actually, if we if we just have diverse native pastures full of wild flowers, which is what was the case before they all got and inverted commas improved then actually we're going to find we have the same impact so um, and cows that smaller cows weaning a bigger percentage of their body body weight are more efficient uh, anyway and if we do that with the diversity as well and the swords then it's all good fantastic rob it's always a pleasure to speak to you your knowledge is just phenomenal it's been a pleasure as always we really need to speak to you again and if anyone would like to hear rob's particular thoughts about key regenerative beef breeding traits and characteristics then just go to 8.9.com look up the 8.9 tv link uh, or tune into this week's newsweek on friday where the audio from that original interview will be included as a podcast rob thank you for joining us let's take a break
And we're back. And Phil, I mean, Rob Havard, what an amazing mine of information. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. And um, yeah, some really, really interesting stuff there, which you quite often don't really consider. So um, yeah, my mind is buzzing and I've got a lot more to, to kind of read up on, I think, after speaking to him. We're going to have a slightly longer conversation, as we usually do, about a couple of different stories here. And Phil, do you want to set us up with the first? Of course. So the first one is um, a recent report that has come out from Lantra. Just explain what Lantra is. So Lantra are a land-based training provider. Um, I always knew them as the organisation that you would go to to get your uh, chainsaw <laughs> license or something like that but they provide a range of, of training resources for anyone working land-based sector and okay so sorry i interrupted back back to the news story oh it's all good that's all good and i that's off the top of my head so i hope i've got that right as to to who lantra are but that's how i know them anyway so their, their key argument is that there needs to be a flexible approach to training and employment to help the the sector i suppose the farming sector recruit and train new entrants um, and in doing so build long-term resilience to, to the agriculture sector so this report was released at the oxford farming conference and it makes a very kind of clear case for the use of apprentice apprenticeships in agriculture um, a bit of an overview as to why they are so low and the barriers that um yeah are in the way of farmers using apprenticeships as as a, as a tool um and yeah how those can be overcome as well so yeah i, I suppose interesting solutions in terms of bringing new employment into the sector i thought the re the the repress release with it was potentially a little bit misleading and um, it was very much focused on new entrants and for me this was addressing labor shortages as opposed to bringing in new entrants into the sector as a whole um, and it talked it, it didn't talk about um yeah i suppose the need for access to land how different schemes that the government could um, yeah, put in place would help address some of that. The, the role of finance, for example. So I think it was a very, very kind of focused solution for something which is, I suppose, a, a lot wider. But I think it makes a useful contribution to the debate. Yeah, and, and perhaps that's my fault for, you know, kind of taking the steer from the press release a little bit too much. And, and uh, so that our headline was flexible approaches needed to bring new entrants into small farming businesses. And, and really, as you say, this report is very much focused around apprenticeships. Should we just talk through some of the key findings of that report? And I think really it's the focus group insights within the report that are, um, that, that are particularly helpful. And then go back to that issue of new entrants more broadly and some of the reasons why why, uh, you know, new entrants may not be attracted to the farming sector. And the first one that they picked up was that many farm businesses just perceive the apprenticeship system to be too complex and difficult to navigate. So this is about bureaucracy and paperwork. But there's also that whole issue of small businesses maybe lacking the skills or fearing that they lack the skills in order to be able to manage to manage a person who's training. Yeah, yeah. So they did they did research and primary research with a number of small, I suppose, farm and agriculture businesses, and it found that generally there's a high appetite for apprenticeships, and they could play a really valuable role in supporting the business itself. But nine out of ten employers um, say that they actually need help and support to navigate the system and to navigate it effectively. And it makes the point that um, in many circumstances or many cases, these will be first time employers um, and they're, they're, I suppose, challenged by the, the means and I suppose what needs to be done to undertake the employment of, of an apprentice, essentially. And it makes this case that the sector would benefit from an intermediary body. To, to take on some of this burden and, yeah, would work between the agriculture sector and the apprenticeships themselves or the apprentices themselves. And then that also helps to de-risk this as a, as a viable kind of venture for small and, and very small businesses. So, yeah, some really, really interesting and, and useful recommendations. And that whole issue of first-time employers, I guess, is, you know, is, is interesting because if you were a first-time employer, you were thinking that you needed some help on the farm um, and you were, you know, you were going out to recruit, then I guess the caveat you, you'd always have would be, well, we can give it a try for a month. Maybe we can give it a try for three months or six months and see how it goes. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But the commitment here is for 18 months. Mm. And that's been seen as, as being a barrier actually in both directions. It's a barrier to... So 
some small businesses taking on apprentices in the first place and it's possibly a barrier to some of the people who might become apprentices becoming apprentices because it's it's quite a substantial commitment there was also an issue around the current apprenticeship standards actually lacking some of the key skills that farmers were needing so some of the basic stuff like being able to drive uh, an HGV or or have a uh, a license for using a cherry picker uh, and so on so some of those basic things were lacking as well yeah and that's i suppose where where Lantra could come in and yeah provide some of those provide some of those skills the other bit that um yeah came out within this as well was the academic kind of thresholds for for apprenticeships as well and how those could act as a barrier for people um who might otherwise be brilliant workers on the farm so i need to look at that and they they mentioned that there is a scheme in place in scotland um, which looks at an alternative kind of way of doing things and that involves a six-month training program um, which yeah readiness for work training all the sort of stuff that we were kind of talking about you were talking about there how that could hit potentially be a way to make it easier to navigate more attractive um, a, an interesting way and a good way to get people involved in the in the sector essentially and the final thing I, I sort of came across within those recommendations was seasonality. That seasonality itself could make it difficult to fully employ apprentices because within a smaller business, they may have really busy times of the year and then other times of the year when they're, they're less busy and doing some maintenance, doing some paperwork, etc. So, so there was, you know, there was a lot of food for thought. And, uh, and as you say, Lantra are probably well placed to address some of those challenges themselves. In terms of that broader question about bringing new entrants into, into into farming, sort of becoming small business owners. Part of that is about land availability. Um, I guess diversity comes in that as well, that there are, uh, you know, there are certain people with skills who perhaps don't feel that farming is something that would be welcoming for them. Um, you know, people who come from different ethnic backgrounds, perhaps. What other sort of issues are we thinking about here? I think going back, there's a real need or for a commitment to or a recognition of the valuable role that new entrants can play in farming and especially in this landscape when we're looking at farming to do a lot more on top of food production as well. So being a lot more focused, I suppose, on, on the market and that's yeah, private markets for, for biodiversity and carbon and everything on that front as well. Um, being yeah very dynamic and bringing in potential skills from other, from other areas of employment too. And there's good evidence to show that new entrants to, to the sector can, can bring dynamism and can be, do lots of really, really good things and yeah, have a real passion to actually make a business work as well. Not saying that existing farmers don't have that, but I think there needs to be this acknowledgement that this is quite important. And we've got an agriculture sector, the average age, um, I think, of farmers in the UK is, is 59. So we've got issues coming down the line in terms of um, generational renewal and making sure that, yeah, we've got yeah, adequate kind of people coming coming in. So I think there needs to be a more coherent strategy to support new entrants. And I think there's been a few potentially missed opportunities in this space. So we had a lump sum exit scheme, which essentially was a retirement package for existing farmers to avail of all of their BPS funding to be rolled into one and yet yeah, to be a payment, a golden handshake out of the sector, essentially. And I think that potentially could have been more lucrative to support those wanting to leave. I think within that, that should have been joined up with um, a good new entrance scheme and an opportunity to match new entrants or potential new entrants with land, for example. And I think we need to look at things yeah, more creatively with that recognition that new entrants are, are pretty essential um, moving forward. I would say from our perspective as the Nature Friendly Farming Network, there's quite a few of our members and quite prominent members are new entrants to farming and they're they're doing some really interesting, innovative stuff where, they, where they're working. And then the last piece on this is um, not necessarily new entrants, but encouraging people within farming families who've maybe gone out and, and done something else for 5, 10, 15 years to come back to the farm and bring, bring new ideas and a fresh approach. And there's, there's plenty of examples on that front of the benefits that that, that can bring as well. That, that's that's a few ideas and a, a few things, and I think it comes back to that importance of recognising um, the value of, of new entrants to agriculture and around. 
It feels like it takes us back almost to that conversation we were just having with Rob, where there is a need for genetic diversity across the board and uh, where, you know, the stag needs to be overtaken by the younger stag at some point. And, and perhaps within farming, we're finding not that farming itself is inbred, but the ideas are, are perhaps a little inbred. And actually having some of that new blood coming in, those new ideas uh, can be really stimulating for the industry as a whole. Uh, you know, something might be different and might be a bit frightening to start with but gradually that gets normalized and people are able to sort of look over the fence and see you know quite how interesting and, and useful these new ideas are let's move on to the last story that we're talking about today which is a new toolkit which has come from the green finance institute and they say will empower farmers to assess nature market opportunities so what they've done the gfi has published a free interactive farming toolkit it's been commissioned by defra to equip and empower the farming community to understand nature markets such as carbon credits and biodiversity net gain and help them to understand what they need to do to assess whether they could uh, provide suitable or new income stream for them and their businesses. And part of this is about getting them ready to apply for the Natural Environment Investment Readiness Fund. And that fund is uh, is a grant of up to £100,000. If farmers are interested in looking at this, then you know the time is now. Um, these applications do need to be in within the next month by noon on the 16th of February. But this is £100,000 uh, to pay for up to 100% of the eligible costs. And this grant isn't to actually deliver um, change on the farm in relation to nature market opportunities, but it's for farmers to explore those nature markets to actually do some investment and some research into what they could deliver, um, some groundwork on their own farms for that. And, you know, having a, a look at this toolkit online, it does look incredibly useful. It does. I had um, a very quick look through it and I'm definitely going to go back to it and I think it's a really really useful straightforward tool for farmers to use to kind of make informed business decisions the, the kind of landscape around this at the moment we've got so many different markets coming into play so many different schemes we've got biodiversity net gain which isn't too far away from being released we've also got uh, nutrient neutrality again we've got that we've got the whole issue with carbon markets too it's a, a landscape of opportunity but it's also a landscape of risk and a landscape of which there's a lot to, to make sense of. So, yeah, it's a really, really, really useful tool. It goes through everything in terms of what nature markets actually are, what's available, why you'd want to engage with these as a farmer. And, yeah, we've spoken about some of the reasons for these. It's not just financial benefit, but it's also benefit to the system um, and, yeah, kind of multifunctional benefits within that too. Um, how you get access to them. What are the main concerns and risks? Because I think that's very important. And then what are the next steps that, that you should take? And then within that, it has this quite um, interesting concept of the kind of the snake. And it goes through initial groundwork and research right the way through to market engagement and delivery. So I think every step of the process is communicated and displayed within this. So I think it's a really useful resource of which farmers should should definitely avail. Yeah, as you say, it, it, it essentially breaks this, uh, breaks the website, breaks the information into three different sections, doesn't it? It's got an introduction to nature markets where it goes through those things that you were talking about there. You know, what are nature markets? You know, what are they specifically? What are we talking about? Nutrient neutrality. What is that? It starts to break down some of that jargon and explain it. Uh, and then, you know, looks at which farmers and how farmers can start to access these markets. But then, as you say, that snake is a really useful part of the toolkit that takes you through step by step the stages that you need to go through in order uh, to make sure that you've covered all the bases, that you've asked all the right questions. And I think that's always one of the challenges. You know, it's a challenge with an interview as well. When you're trying to talk to somebody about something, you kind of need to know a bit about it before you know exactly what the questions are that you should be asking. And, and I think what the talk it does is help people to understand what questions they should ask. And obviously it's independent. It's not trying to tell them you should do this, you should do that. It's just taking them through the steps and providing them information so that farmers, um, you know, whether they're tenants or whether they're owners, are able to ask the questions that they need to before signing a legal contract. And then the third section of the site is case studies. And the one I'm looking at on the screen at the moment is the Wire Catchment Natural Flood Management Project. And we're talking here about 99 kilometres squared of land uh, that has, you know, sort of been taken up within that, uh, that particular approach. 
it's farms from five to a thousand hectares. Uh, the Wire Catchment Natural Flood Management Project is the first example, it says, in the UK of farmers being paid to deliver natural flood management as part of a commercial agreement. And the project plans to deliver more than a thousand targeted measures to store, slow and intercept flood water and prevent peak flow. Now, again, this comes back, doesn't it, to the conversation that we started out from around actions that farmers can take around flooding. It's worth remembering that sometimes farmers don't necessarily need to get paid or go through a big process um, to put these interventions in place. We've talked about Stroud in the past, uh, where Chris Utley just had the policy of saying, yes, please get on with it. And he'd often contract the farmers to, to dig their own earth bundle or whatever else it was. So we don't necessarily need to have full assessments for those kinds of things. But where farmers are working together in a commercial environment, they are able to access funding. And this website provides an awful lot of resource for sort of helping them uh, map out what they need to do, ask the right questions and put that planning in place. If I was going to be picky, I thought that all the information was quite text heavy and it's it's really accessible text. I don't want people to be put off by that comment. You know, it is nice infographics. It's really dynamic the way that the website works. It's really, uh, really accessible. But at the same time, I think for a lot of farmers, they would find it helpful to have some podcasts and some perhaps video tutorials or some webinars that help to sort of explain that. And I, I hope that's something that the Greener Finance Institute will be considering in the future to, to build on what's an incredibly powerful toolkit, I think, in the first instance. Let's move on to policy. Is there anything to say on policy this week, Phil? Yes, a couple of things which would be of interest to our listeners. And the first of those is a debate in Parliament next week on supply chain fairness and I mentioned it earlier on the podcast today but this is um, a debate that has been brought into place as a result of a petition that was led by Riverford calling for um, yeah, greater, uh, greater fairness within supply chains. It quite quickly got uh, to be on the threshold of 100,000 signatures and is now going to be put for for debate in the house. Um, what I would say on this is to is to check it out. But if anyone is particularly interested or passionate about this issue, which um, yeah, if you're a farmer, obviously affects you, then to write out to your your MP to encourage them to go along and make the case that you're a constituent that has been been impacted by this, or yeah, is obviously interested in it. And there's potentially big news in Northern Ireland. There is indeed, and I don't want to count any chickens before they've hatched, but we are in the process of, um, yeah, intense political negotiations to reform the Assembly. And we have had a commitment to an extra £3.3 billion worth of funding um, to cover budgetary shortfalls in a range of areas and also to, to address issues such as public sector pay. So that would be brilliant to see um, a commitment or an agreement to restore the Assembly after over a year of um, government without without ministers. Um, and with that, obviously, there will hopefully be more direction and a bit more emphasis put into what happens next with our, our agriculture policy, which is in a, a limbo land where there's elements of it which um, have been approved and are being implemented and areas which we've been told are waiting on ministerial sign-off, and in particular, um, what will be the new agri-environment scheme for Northern Ireland. So, yeah, lots to play for. Crossing my fingers that um, we'll get a good outcome come Thursday. And, um, yeah, that's, that's one to watch. Absolutely. Potentially very exciting. Well, I think that's brought us to the end of the programme. So thanks very much, everyone, for listening. I'd like to say thank you to Rob Havard from Phipps and Angus for coming and being our special guest today. I've been Finn Locustain. Bye for now. And I've been Phil Carson. Goodbye.